Welcome to Unbooking the Territories. We continue our journey through the highest and lowest TV rated episodes of the Monday Night Wars for each creative period. This week's is Kevin Sullivan's lowest rated episode. Oh, you have given me so much that I have to give you something in return that you've never had. I'm giving you laughter, Father. I'm giving you something to smile about. Gentlemen, at the risk of sounding negative, what in the world is going on here tonight? I feel like a sadomasochist, a man that's walking a thin line between pain and pleasure. The pleasure is this, top of the heap, A number one. There isn't going to be any winners, there won't be any losers, there's only survivors. I know somebody back there from that executive committee is in this building. Get me a match. I'm not asking it, I'm demanding it. With Sullivan. I don't think this is what Aretha Franklin meant. You, Booker man. So how are you this week, Dan? I'm not too bad, mate. I've survived another full week at work at time of recording after five months on furlough, so that's that's about as good as it gets for me at the minute. And I've uh, I've got to apologise for finally delaying the recording because of something I ate. But we're here, so that's all that matters. How are you, mate? They say when you're ill after you've been drinking that it's a dirty glass, so maybe it's uh, a dirty plate or something. <laughs> I blame the uh, I blame the rapper that the uh, the butchers sent my Balti pie home in. <laughs> uh, we, we've been without hot water for the last four days because the boiler went. So we've got boiler protection anyway. So the guy came out and he used to order a part. And then he came back today when it arrived because it had to come from Europe. And it's the wrong size. So, <laughs> again, so uh, it, it's, it's like the 19th century, sort of boiling water and... <laughs> Relying on your kettle. Oh, it's awful. Off. It's all right, mate. Just, just, just bathe in beer. You know, well, the that, uh, royal, royalty in ancient Egypt used to bathe in milk. Surely you can bathe in milk stout. One of the things I love about the ancient world is that the water wasn't clean enough to drink, and maybe they didn't understand why, but they knew that they wouldn't get sick if they drank beer. So people drank beer rather than water. So every human achievement, you know, the building of the great pyramids and all, all sort of you know classical literature, all that sort of stuff. Everyone was slightly sozzled. We were born in the wrong time, mate. <laughs> well, all our great achievements have come when we've been slightly sozzled. So I'll drink. I'll drink to that. Cheers. Talking about that, what are you drinking, Dan? I'm on milk foley. Appropriate for this podcast. Wrestling beer named after a wrestler. Strawberry and cream pale ale from Turning Point, six point three percent. It's not a bad drop. Bought for me by your good self. Sent over in a care package for my birthday. Much appreciated. So yeah, I think I gave this uh, 3.25 on Untapped. It's uh, that's good for me for pale ales because they're not normally my thing. But yeah, I'd recommend that's a good drop. What are you on? Well, if, if I'd known you were going to drink it for this episode of Nitro, I'd have put a sticker over it saying Cactus Jack pale ale. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, ne- I'm never drinking Cactus Jacks again. Did you ever <laughs> have that the sours thing that came in the tall thin bottle? No, I've not had that. Oh, it's rotten. Imagine sours that you used to get in bars, but somehow worse. And oh. what put me off it was, that it's not particularly good anyway, but when I was at uni, I saw a bloke neck a full bottle of it straight down and then throw it immediately back up into a bush. But the smell, because he'd had a skinful before and before I even tried this, the smell of those sours and just stale beer that had been in his gut was disgusting. Oh, you, you shouldn't be doing that in front of a mirror, Dan. Oh, fuck. Rumbled. <laughs> Definitely wasn't me. 
I'm back on the siren um, just for the nitro tie-in. I've got Midnight Maverick, which is a nitro oatmeal milk stout. After that, I've got Fancy Papers from Cigar City Brewing, which is a hazy Indian pale ale. Not too shabby. They come, uh, the, that siren one come, it comes in a 330 mil, doesn't it? Yeah, it's that one, yeah. Um, Not a bad beer, though. I think I've had that one. I think you gave it 1.5 on on taps. I've given it 3.75, yeah. I might be thinking of, I must be thinking of a different one then. Yeah. Who knows? Oh, well. I, I, I quite like Siren as a brewery though, so. Yeah, they're not bad. They'll do. Not quite turning point, but they'll do. It sounds like we're getting into beer recommendations before the beer sommelier yeah, section. So it's that time of the week when the listeners can sit back and be the virtual Nia Jacks and Shana Baszler there playing on a phone. Well, uh, we'll be the virtual Reginald and make a recommendation of what beer you should drink while you're watching this episode of Monday Nitro. So what, what would you recommend, Dan? I'm going back to Friends of the Show, Brass Castle, and their beer, Meet Me Underwater. It's, just get the description up here, and I've completely lost it again. But basically, it's a beer made with seaweed. It's one All of right. the chief ingredients. And it sounds like it shouldn't work. Like you hear seaweed and beer, and you just think, what am I on for here? Then you actually start drinking it and you realise, actually, a red IPA with seaweed tastes bloody lovely. Just that little bit of salt cutting through it is actually pretty damn delicious. Yeah, I'll have to give that a try. It sounds nice. Yeah, take it, mate. What's your recommendation? Yeah, I've gone for Dancing Beer by Magic Rock. Makes you think of Alex Wright dancing away on Nitro. It's uh, 4.5% German Pilsner. Given it 4.5 out of 5 on taps. And the reason I've given it, it's a great beer from a great brewery for what I thought was a great episode of Nitro. So, Fair enough, yeah. I mean, I've, I've gone for mine on, on along similar premise in that looking at the ingredients, I didn't think it would work, but it, it surprised me. It really did. Good stuff. And now we're going over to Best Beer of the Week. And Best Beer of the Week is Papa Mango by Top Rope Brewing. I have, I have had Papa Mango. There's one in my fridge. Yeah, so, you know, again, she's had a sixth sense and uh, guessed what you might be drinking at this point. It's a 5.1% New England IPA. She's given it a five and untapped. I gave it 2.75. Let me uh, just check, see if I've actually checked it in, because if I had Papa Mango, it was after a visit to, um, oh, what's it called now? I can't remember the beer. I can't remember the beer shop around the corner from work. Hopper Clock. Hopper Clock in York. Show them some love. They're good. And I haven't had it. First time we found, discovered Top Rope Brewing, they had a load of it at the uh, Growling Shrew in Skipton. So mm. nice to uh, pick some up there. I need to try that place when the world opens up. You keep uh, you keep mentioning it, so. Well, you, you can take your own sort of growlers and they'll fill them up. So it's they've got sort of a little bar area and a, and a decent range. And if you don't want to pay those prices, it's next door to Morrison's, so you can just go and get what's uh, cheaper. <laughs> That is one of the most new things to ever be said on this podcast. It's like, I'm going to go for this really nice craft beer, but if it's a bit too expensive, I'm going to nip to Morrison's and get some tinnies. Or do both. Just by the train station, so you don't have to drive there. Fantastic. Yeah, so it's a, it's a well-appointed bottle shop. I actually really do appreciate that. That's It's pretty smart. <laughs> so this is the first episode of Nitro that we're going to cover. And obviously, it's the first episode where Kevin Sullivan's in charge of creative that we're going to cover. It's probably worth saying, though, that in WCW, there was a bit of a committee. So the way we've sort of looked at it is sort of who's in charge or taking the main role within that committee. Obviously, you're going to get other voices because we know a lot of people in WCW have creative control. So 
Hogan has creative control, Savage will have creative control. And as well as that, you've got Bischoff, who's having quite a big influence. And mm-hmm. we've also discussed sort of people maybe sat at the back, maybe not saying as much, maybe sort of, you know, developing the skills, looking to step up in the future. And there's certainly Terry Taylor sat in those meetings at this point as well. But Kevin Sullivan's the man. But we'll just have a quick log on to LinkedIn and look at the reasons why you might have been hired for this role as um, head of creative and if i can just interject quickly because of work and various other sort of things going on you know family life and whatnot i have not had time to look at a single thing about kevin sullivan so i'm going into this completely blind so prepare yourself for some uh, prepare yourself for some waffle <laughs> well it's interesting you say that because kevin sullivan had been an amateur wrestler and then he started professional re- wrestling without actually training in professional wrestling so it really? sounds like he was as prepared for this segment as you were. So this is just how good I am. I fluke my way into uh, into being like the subject. <laughs> it's method acting. That's what it is. <laughs> There's no method to what I do. <laughs> he creates the Prince of Darkness gimmick in Championship Wrestling from Florida. He then goes on to work for International Championship Wrestling with the Fallen Angel, a.k.a. Woman, as his manager. Then in Jim Crockett slash WCW, he's in the Varsity Club, and he's uh, he manages Oz as the Great Wizard. I thought that was him. I was I was weirdly I was looking up Oz earlier today uh, for something on Twitter, and I, I could but I never actually saw his manager's face. But you know when you can just recognise someone from an odd angle from the side or whatnot. Oh, fair enough. I never knew that, but he's, he's showing showing versatility so far. Well, the interesting thing, we talked about that sort of Bill Watts factor in terms of the heads of creative of Raw, having these people mm-hmm. at some point under the, under the wing. And Kevin Nash is going to come in and become the head of creative later on in WCW. So maybe we've got their own training scheme on the other side. <laughs> Everybody under Sullivan. Are you sure that's not just a longevity sort of thing? It, it possibly is. And to be fair, Sullivan's here, but it, later on he's going to come back with Terry Taylor uh, and then he's right at the end there's there's a few people who are working together and Sullivan's in the mix so it's not his only sort of time in creative and perhaps there isn't as many people but it's just a little interesting link. He had short stints in Smoky Mountain Wrestling and ECW then he becomes the head booker in WCW with a big idea of the Dungeon of Doom and the Taskmaster gimmick and he yeah. the Dungeon of Doom see this is the funny thing I never watched Nitro growing up, really. But a few years back, obviously, with the network, I decided, let's go back and have a look. You know, let's go watch these bits and pieces. And going back with adult eyes and watching the Dungeon of Doom, it's it's a laugh, to be honest, looking back on it. It's completely ridiculous, over the top. It's actually quite it's quite similar to that early, early 90s cheese we've talked about with WWF. Uh, you know, the cheese factor and all of that. With But it was wound up it was just dialed up to 11 like with the yeti and all the other the mad characters knew it was the old the fat bald bloke who, uh, who sat on the throne the grandmaster or something yeah he always used to refer to him as father didn't he yeah, yeah. and and all of that it was it was wwf was ridiculous was cheesy and a bit ridiculous with the career gimmicks this just seemed to lean into it to a point where looking back it kind of it kind of works, even though it's goofball bullshit. It was certainly out there. And I guess one thing when I watch wrestling, I kind of 
will give you know a little bit of leeway when people try something a bit different. So anything that's getting away from just generic, you know, men in tights wrestling sort of thing. Anything that isn't on a conveyor belt. Exactly. And, you know, some of it's going to land and some, some of it's not. And perhaps it wasn't landing amazingly well. But you get things like um, the giant come out of the Dungeon of Doom, the big show. Or, mm. I was just know. about to say exactly the same thing. A guy that big, that athletic, who you can say what you want about the booking, the shotgunned him to the top too soon and the only way was down from that but he became an enduring he endured for 20 years now in fact nearly nearly 25 years as a top you know as, as, a, as a top guy and without the dungeon of doom he, he doesn't necessarily get all the uh get all the buzz at the start no and see he had an absolute rocket on him to start with i mean first match and he wins the wcw championship so it just goes to show how highly they thought of him at the time. And, and that was my other question about him. With a guy that big, yeah, you can bring him in and Goldberg him, give him a streak, have him beating down jobbers. But you, you want a guy that big to have an impact, to have an immediate presence. You strap him. Maybe they could have done the US title. But if you really want to make an instant star, you have him win the world title. Yeah, and... All the sort of craziness of having him in the monster truck match uh, against Hulk Hogan <laughs> on the roof of Cobo Hall. You, you know, it, it's silly as it is, it, it's a massive angle, a massive storyline with a lot of production behind it that they're putting this new guy into. So the clearly yeah, it is right to the top. It is, but you know, I'll suspend my disbelief so far. But a, a twenty-story, uh, a twenty-story fall in a monster truck to walk into the match later on. <laughs> well, he didn't fall in the monster truck. He. Uh, he was out of the monster truck by that point. I don't know if that makes it slightly more believable or not. I've no idea. It was a bit crap either way. Right. So we'll just give a little context of where we sit with the ratings. So Kevin Sullivan's in charge of this booking committee for quite a long time. It's the first 176 episodes of Nitro. This episode that we're going to review today was the joint lowest episode that he had. So this one is from. The 6th of May, 1996, there was one on the 18th of September, 95, which is about the second episode into the Nitro run. And, and the reason we've chosen this episode is that after this episode, WCW are not looking back for a very long time. It's up, 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 or only in one direction. And that ends up going to a 6 on the 31st of August, 98. As well as being in charge of Nitro, he's actually there at the start of Thunder. Um, in charge for 48 episodes and we may take a little detour into Thunder later on so stay that'll tuned be, that'll be an education I've, I think I've watched one episode of Thunder in my life and it was with you and we were trolled and I cannot remember it for the life of me well it's interesting some of these things about Thunder and Smackdown because they weren't necessarily always broadcast or broadcast on, on time in the UK I think the only matches we saw from certainly SmackDown in the UK right at the start were either on Live Wire or the Wrestling Challenge at that point. But certainly we didn't get the full show. And I think it was a little bit the same with Thunder at the start. So, yeah, the, there's, there's probably big gaps in my Thunder knowledge as well, to be honest. But we'll maybe have a look at that at a later date. And this compares to when Kevin Nash is going to come and take over. So, 
Um, Kevin Sullivan has an average of 3.66, but that's going up and up and up. Kevin Nash is going to come in and it's going to go down and down and down. So he has a, a, an average of 3.765. But you've got to kind of remember that he's sort of been gifted, you know, starting off near that six by the time he takes over. So, yeah, Sullivan, Sullivan Road... Sullivan rode the nitro ship to the crest of the wave, handed over the reins, and then Nash took it down the other side. <laughs> Maybe he should have spent more time when he was managing as uh, the great Oz, <laughs> passing on that knowledge. Yeah, because that gimmick went down well. That's what he should have done. That that is what he should have done when he when he uh, took over the booking. Forget the ping poker doom etc. Uh, getting back in the uh, great Oz. Do a do a running into World War Three as um, he's in one ring as uh, as Kevin Nash in one ring as Oz and in the other as Vinnie Vegas. Exactly the, the three faces of Nash. <laughs> Works superbly well. So in terms of the show itself, as we say, it's um, the sixth of May, nineteen ninety six. It's at the Ocean Centre in Daytona Beach, and this is going to be the same arena that Hogan is going to heel turn in later on when he joins the NWO. I knew I knew that arena name for a reason. And we don't have an attendance for this episode of Nitro, but the arena holds about 9,000, and it looked pretty packed. It looked rammed compared to the episodes of Raw we've been looking at. This was an absolute madhouse packed to the rafters. Well, we're potentially looking at about four and a half times the amount of people here to see Nitro that we're going to see Raw in the episodes that were reviewed. Yeah, you're right, because it's been about 2,000. I think the top the top attendance was somewhere around about 4,000 for Raw. We did get coverage from In Your House 5, didn't we, which would have been more. I think that doesn't top, count. I think there was a Raw that was about 3,000 that I remember. But, I mean, this is, this is blowing it away, whichever way you look at it. Oh, yeah, it's two to three weeks' worth of attendance, if not more. So this is a low rated nitro but perhaps one of the reasons it's a low rated nitro is it's actually starting 2 hours early because there's a basketball game that's going to be on this basketball game turns out to be uh, i know next to nothing about basketball all i kind of know is uh, on nba jam on the mega drive if you score uh, three times consecutively your shoes go on fire so i'm assuming uh, i've seen that happen on the court yes well, I'm assuming that does happen in the real game, and I'm assuming it happened in this game. It was uh, the Seattle Supersonics versus the Houston Rockets, and the score was 105 to 101. It was the semi-final game two of the Western Conference, where there were 33 three-pointers, um, 20 to Seattle and 13 to Houston, and that's the most ever in an NBA playoff game. Oh, fair enough. I, I've I've watched a little bit of basketball over the years, and I know enough to know that's a high score. But I think how they actually um, get the shoes to go on fire is quite interesting. You know the uh, the Hulk Hogan meat shoes. Mm. It's those, but instead of uh, instead of a meat draw, they've actually got like toaster filaments. So the more you run, the more and the more you shoot, the more they heat up, and the fir- the shoes just burst into flames. It's really, really good, really good tech. Yeah, I, sh- I should probably watch more uh, basketball if they're going to be running around with their uh, feet on fire. It's amazing. Yeah, definitely. And this co- and actually, that basketball game is the thing that does go head-to-head with Raw on that night. And Raw actually does quite well, considering it's going against, you know, this epic basketball game. Raw's going to get a 4.1, and that ends up being Bruce Pritchard and Jim Cornette's second-highest rating. So it's just kind of interesting that TNT have put this basketball game on 
it's an absolute shoe burner. And Raw still does very well. <laughs> Fucking shoe burner. <laughs> I managed to deadpan the whole bullshit about Hulk Hogan meat shoes and you've done me with shoe burner. <laughs> well, that's what happens in basketball, I've seen it. <laughs> oh, you, ba- you bastard. Oh, that's great. Um, you are right, though. The, the moving of the time slot has, has got to be a major factor. But, my God, they did not let you forget that the basketball was coming up, did they? Quite rightly so, though. I mean, yeah. with, with, a, with a legitimate spot, you never know if it's going to be an all-time classic or an absolute dud, do you? Uh, obviously, the, you know, the, the fans of Seattle and Houston are invested, but they're trying to get, you know, the, the casual audience to watch. And, you know, they promoted it hard, but quite rightly so, we in and in, in fairness, I suppose it's no weirder to, if you're watching the football on BT today, and it's bizarre hearing, you know, Sky Sports presenter talking about WWE saying, you know, SmackDown's on or Raw's on. That always sort of jars me. I'm like, hey, hang on, wrestling's getting attention during a, you know, during a Monday night football game, <laughs> Premier League game. I, I do like some of the BT adverts for uh, WWE. To be fair, they do, they do seem to be back in them. Fair enough. They need it. <laughs> need well, to get they, people they, in. The the problem is BT. It's not many people subscribe, and when you do subscribe, you have to pay the same amount of subscription for how many tellies you want to watch it on. That's so, why I rarely watch Raw or SmackDown anymore because we've got BT in the house. It's in the back room. My sort of area is in the front room, so I have to watch it on the app when my brother's not watching something and stuff like that. So it's just it, it's tethered the access, and I'm a lifelong WWE fan. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's crazy, and the fact it comes through a skybox and it still has those technical difficulties is just insane. So I don't think it's done them any favors. But on the flip side, it really supports them. And you compare that to the deal AEW have got, where it's nice and accessible. Uh, you know, you can get it off the player, or you can you know just record it off normal TV. It's on. It's one of the free view channels, so in theory, everyone's got access to it but you don't get the same level of support from ITV4. So yeah. got to weigh that up. It's like there's, there's pluses and negatives to both of those deals. There really is. There's about a billion, a billion positives to WWE for the, uh, for the BT deal, wasn't there? Well, yeah, it was, it was more financially uh, viable. But anyway, we're here to talk about Nitro. Yeah, I've led us um, off course, brilliant. <laughs> so we get a video of Daytona Beach. Uh, I quite liked this um, on the Nitros. Actually, that was just after the Fire Street start, which is awesome. I love it. I love that. I, I love that. Don't get me wrong. I love the Riot entrance, uh, the Riot intro for Raw. That's great. But this old WCW entrance with the fire in the streets, projecting the uh, the action up onto the buildings, the fireworks going off behind the logo. That was absolute magic. It was. It was brilliant. And as you say, Bischoff's there saying that there's going to be NBA action later on. We've got Bischoff, Heenan, and Mongo at the desk, and Pepe the dog, dressed as a sailor. So we don't normally get many dogs on commentary, but we've got one here. And you don't get many chihuahuas in wrestling, because they either end up on commentary or being fed to their owners. Yeah, it's definitely that WCW treated the chihuahuas better than WWF. (laughs) Score one point to WCW for treatment of chihuahuas. But going back to the opening, it, it, it had that bit of hype. You know, with the the music and the pyro 
it had an energy to it. And then that, that amount of fans cheering and screaming and, and the pan, even the panning shot of Daytona Beach, it all had a level of excitement that just you don't quite get in the opening of, of Aurora at this time. It, you could hardly hear Bobby Heenan for the crowd chanting weasel at him. You know, mm-hmm. He's there trying to promote um, the Lex Luger giant match and the, the crowd's just drowning him out. And we're just not we're just not used to this level of fan interaction from the episodes that we've uh, reviewed. And yeah, then we it was get fantastic. It was it, it was really good. It's really good to see. Then we get Mongo saying that they may be uh, rolling the macho man out like Hannibal Lecter. Bischoff is promoting the Juice and Thunder Liger versus Dean Malenko match and Sting versus Lord Stephen Regal. They pan around the arena and as we've said, it, it looks absolutely packed. And we get Hugh Morris making his way to the ring. Yeah, private pile um, from Full Metal Jacket. That was all I could think of as Hugh Morris was when he broke when he broke into that grin and the laugh. It just screamed private pile to me. And I've been wonder, I've been trying to place that for years. What that reminded what that reminded me of, and it just twigged watching this. That same grin pile as before he offers himself. Well, he's going to think that's a big come down because uh, later on in his career, he's going to become a general. General Hugh G. Oh, God, yes. Yes, he he did. (laughs) And even later on, he's going to be um, stood at ringside shouting, I know 10 people that want this more than you on the career mode on the uh, SmackDown versus Raw games. I don't remember that. That that he was literally just stood in the corner shouting, I know 10 10 people that want this more than you, like 50 times during each match. I've probably blocked that from my memory, which sounds just as well. (laughs) Yeah, just as well repressed that memory, yeah. Then we get the macho man coming out and Bischoff saying about Ric Flair's doing everything to push him to the limit. And we get Hugh Morris attacking the macho man before the match starts. Which I and... think is fair because Savage started his entrance before Hugh Morris had even got in the ring. Ignorant bastard. They seem to do that in WCW, didn't they? They got halfway down and then they'd just start the next person. I'd never noticed it before watching this. Yeah, I'd noticed it a few times. It, it does seem a bit weird. He's probably upset because they haven't got those flame ring mats yet. It's just the ordinary grey ones. <laughs> the macho man will not wrestle on something so plain and boring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, but there was a brilliant bit when Hugh Morris stole the macho man's hat. Yes. <laughs> One arm in the sleeve. One arm in the jacket. And macho just flips his shit and starts beating him up. This This really wasn't a wrestling match. It was... It was, it was just a fight, and but it was it doesn't matter because it was still entertaining. But the best bit was Macho gets disqualified because he's using the sunglasses to poke Hugh Morris in the eye. And I don't know if you remember again another wrestling game reference on the original Raw game on the Xbox. You could go and get weapons from this box near the entrance, and sometimes you'd pull out you know something that was going to help you, like a chair or something. And sometimes you'd pull out, like, sunglasses or a foam finger that would do no damage. I never played that one. I never knew about that. Oh, it was brilliant. It was this sort of little Easter egg. So you'd be just wafting this foam finger at your opponent and it'd be doing nothing to them. <laughs> I kind of love that. Because, yeah, what are you going to find around a wrestling ring? Well, that, foam that's finger, actually, yeah. Yeah, that's the stuff you do find at the wrestling. You know, they, they don't have thumbtacks. You're not, you're not wrestling in WH Smiths. But they do have foam fingers. <laughs> oh, man, I need that now. The British wrestling version of Booker T and Steve Austin fighting in the supermarket. Just two randomers going at it in a WH Smith. 
and they, they always try and uh, tack on a bar of galaxy for a pound. <laughs> what? Yeah, a bar of galaxy that's far too big that's been sat at the back of the store cupboard for about a year. Yeah, it's always something really random that has no relation to the shop that they're trying to upsell you on. Yeah, I think we're getting off topic again. We are, we are. So Savage gets disqualified, and it takes ages for the timekeeper to notice he's being disqualified. The ref's waving at him before the bell gets rung. Yeah, it takes him ages to realise that he's disqualified, and then he doesn't shut the fuck up. That bell is going, oh, it's ringing in my ears days after watching it. I was sat I was getting angry. I was getting angry because I'm watching it. The commentators are trying to talk. And all these ding, 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 ding. And I'm going to go that long because I know that'll annoy people. I want them to feel my annoyance. It was minutes, minutes of ringing this chuffing bell. That was probably to reflect all the stuff that was going on because, you know, Savage hits Hugh Morris with an elbow from the top rope and then he grabs the ref and hits the ref with an elbow from the top rope as well. Bobby Heenan's calling for Savage to be suspended. They, they come, the referee and police come out. Doug Dillinger um, comes out to try and calm him down. And the crowd are completely behind Savage, although you know he, he is out of order at this point. They end up escorting him from the ring. But yeah, it's just sort of crazy. But one thing I did sort of like in WCW compared to when you get it in WWF, WWE, etc. The police actually looked like police. Mm. But rather than just some indie wrestlers that they happen to have put in a black shirt or whatever. Yeah, or some random is in a, in a blue uh, button-up shirt. Yeah. yeah. Actually, yeah, they actually looked authoritative. Yeah, you, you could have believed they were actually police, or they, they were there for the event and they just roped them in. But yeah, they, they did look believable and sort of acted in a kind of believable way with him, I think. As you say, it's not much of a match, but it did a lot to sort of promote Savage losing his mind from the Ric Flair storyline. Yeah, not not to jump the gun on the ratings, but I rated this match as a wrestling match and then as a spectacle and sort of met in the middle and took an average there. So, Because I think it's an important distinction to make. Although it's billed as a match, something like this doesn't have to be an actual wrestling match to get the point across and to be entertaining. It's like um, when we recorded the, that 90s wrestling podcast a, a little while back from the time this airs, and it was the uh, the Roddy Piper Mountie match, which was more like slapstick comedy than a wrestling match. But it was a lot of fun. It did its job. It was entertaining. Yeah, it still sticks to my craw that Meltzer gave that a 1.25. You know, yeah, what does he know? Anyone in the crowd would have thought that was a 5 just from the enjoyment factor. Yeah, well, some people just want to watch wrestling in silence. They do. So then we get a graphic promoting the Malenko-Liger match coming up. And Bischoff is saying um, about Ray Stevens passing away and there's a charity donation to the Cauliflower Alley Club. Uh, I must admit, I, I didn't know that much about Ray Stevens. And Bischoff actually said on commentary that we're going to say a bit more about his career later on. And I don't think they ever really got to that. So I did have a little... Read, a, read around his career and, and found something that I thought was just, just sort of one rivalry that was kind of worth mentioning because uh, it did tickle me. He had a rivalry with uh, a wrestler called Pepe Gomez in the 1960s, which started because Gomez had this gimmick that he had a cast iron stomach and he'd challenge people to try and make him feel pain. 
So Ray Stevens challenged Gomez to let him jump off a 15-foot ladder onto his stomach. Okay. So first of all, he goes up halfway and Gomez doesn't sell that it hurts. And then he goes to the top of the ladder and jumps off. Bear in mind, this is in the 1960s. And um, Gomez is then spitting blood. Uh, I'm assuming that's kayfabe blood, mm. although you know. it's a long, a long distance. So after, after he recovers from this um, kayfabe injury, they go on and have a match at the Cow Palace, and that draws 17,000 people. And it was actually more than Elvis got uh, an appearance at the Cow Palace, sort of at the same sort of time. Let's talk about wrestling being mainstream. Well, exactly. And then in 1963, when this rivalry is still going on, Gomez accidentally um, hits Stevens with a ring bell and ends up getting fined £5,000 legitimately by the California State Athletic Commission. So, <laughs> you know, a, a rivalry with, with maybe a lot of stupid stunts or whatever, but it, it certainly drew, and it did bleed into reality as well. Yeah, yeah. kayfabe in, uh, in the commissions back in the day. I don't, I don't even... I think, I, I didn't think, uh, Ray Stevens... Didn't Ray Stevens have... Uh, wasn't he a tag partner of... Uh, Pat Patterson, if I remember rightly. Yeah, I think he was. I think, um... I think so. I know his mentor had been um, Buddy Rogers. Oh, sorry, I didn't. Mm. So the other way around. I know he'd mentored Buddy Rogers, and I know he'd been sort of US and tag team champion in uh, a few different promotions, sort of thing. So, so quite a decorated career. Yeah, I had a quick. Look there, him, he and Pat Patterson did tag for a while and held, um, I don't know which versions of which which belts, but they were tag champions together. Yeah, and obviously Pat Patterson's got a, uh, a lot of involvement on the other channel as well. So mm. the... It was a nice touch though, this uh, the in memoriam and the encouraging the donations to the, uh, the Cauliflower Alley Club. I, I did quite like that. Yeah. So next we get Dean Malenko versus Juice and Liger, and Liger's got Sonny Ono in his corner. And Bischoff's saying that Otani is the new cruiserweight champion, and he's the first champion because he's won a tournament at uh, New Japan's Hyper Battle 96. So the Forbidden Door's well and truly open in WCW at this point. <laughs> so Otani's beating the Pegasus Kid in the final, and that's uh, back in March. And Bischoff states that Otani's going to defend the title at Slamboree. But actually, Otani's already lost the title on a TV taping to Dean Malenko on the 2nd of May that's going to wear later on on the 18th of May. So okay. in kayfabe, Dean Malenko isn't champion, Otani is. But in chronological time, Dean Malenko's champion now. All right, that's a bit, yeah, that's a bit trippy, but that happens in wrestling, I suppose. Well, it does, especially if you're sort of pre-recording stuff. And I guess that would have happened a lot in this era. You know, we've talked mm. about those WWF shows where they're recording four shows at once or whatever. Yeah. Quite quite behind with quite a bit of stuff. Randomly, Mongo compares Sonny Ono to Jimmy Carter. Um, yeah. Couldn't get that reference. But... It, the weird, one of the weirder ones was when, uh, well, not weird from Mongo, he said that, uh, said that Sonny Ono was a Japanese Jimmy Hart, and Sonny Ono is nowhere near that annoying. But um, <laughs> Braincar said he was Trump. Well, the, I, I so. thought he said it was Jimmy Carter, and then he said he was Trump, and I thought that was interesting because it's a kind of presidential link. No, I thought he before. said he was a Japanese Jimmy Hart, not a Japanese Jimmy Carter. Well, maybe that's why I couldn't find anything. <laughs> <laughs> 
One thing, one thing moving swiftly on. One are you thing sure I did, it wasn't sure was Japanese balls Mahoney? <laughs> I knew you were going to say something like that. I'm sure he said Jimmy Hart. But anyway, one thing I did like at the start of this match, the, the commentary did a really good job of hyping the cruiserweights, of just making it, like getting you to just amped up for it. It was yeah, refreshing. They did. And I think throughout the show, and even though there's kind of some shenanigans that goes on during matches, etc., there's there's a lot, I think there's a lot better balance than we've been getting in WWF with them spending some time focusing on what's actually happening in the ring and the importance of what's happening in the ring. And yes, there may be other storylines as well. Whereas some of the WWF stuff, the match is kind of there in the background and they're completely ignoring it. Yeah. I mean, the start of this match was let down quite badly by um, by the focus on Flair. It distract, it just, I just thought it distracted really badly, but it's no worse than having a phone call in the middle of a match. At least it served a narrative purpose for Flair, you know, for Flair turning up and, and served a purpose later in the show. So I, I didn't want to be too harsh on it, but it really did detract from my enjoyment of the match. I wanted to see these two guys actually go at it. I know we say, we've said often that the, the least important part of the wrestling is the wrestling, but when you've got two guys who can go like Malenko and Liger, I want to watch it. <laughs> uh, no, and that's fair enough. I I did really enjoy the this whole Flair storyline. I mentioned that when again for that night's wrestling podcast when we reviewed SummerSlam '91, that Macho Man and Elizabeth getting married in kayfabe leads further down the line to Macho Man and Elizabeth getting divorced in kayfabe in WCW. Mm-hmm. So here's Liz with Macho's credit card spending all his money. So the they're always going to the VIP sections and drinking champagne and whatever. And it, it's it's what's driving Macho mad. This this is what caused Macho to be so upset at the start of the episode. Mm. So I really enjoy that, and I do think it takes it full circle. An interesting line in commentary, Bischoff actually said that there are big things going to happen in May slash June in WCW. And in hindsight, we know that's going to be Scott Hall arriving. We know. We know who they are, but we don't know why they'll be there. Uh, at this point, we just knew something was going to happen. But but interesting that they're just sort of sowing those little seeds. And it, almost a throwaway line, but in hindsight, yeah. In hindsight, a bit of genius. It really was. It was. It really was. But, but I, I did like this match when it when it kicked in after we'd got away from the from Flair's uh, banquet table. It really it really was good. What did I have written down here? Um, one thing I didn't like the cutback, and it was mid move, which I just thought was a just a, it just wound me up. But then uh, Liger hits uh, like a front flip heel kick in the corner, and then just dives from the top. And I was looking at it; I was in awe just watching it because obviously Liger only retired recently. But then I looked in the crowd, and the the crowd barely seemed to give a shit, which I thought was really really sad because they were putting such effort in. I think the the problem with the cruiserweight division in WCW at this time is that it, it's there as kind of the car crash TV. They haven't really put that much investment in the characters at this point. Yeah. And, you know, that that's going to change later on, and, you know, then it ends up just blurring into the main roster. So uh, at the, it was funny, though, because at the time, it was really nice to see something like that and a little bit of a step change and maybe something we weren't getting on the other channel. But, yeah, as you say, the crowd weren't as invested in this. So then we get a graphic promoting the... Regal and Sting match, 
And then we go to Mean Gene, and he's interviewing Ric Flair with uh, Woman and Liz. Flair's claiming to have parked his Learjet next to John Travolta's. It's uh, quite a funny boast, that, because Travolta's career has been up and down like a roller coaster over the years. So <laughs> yeah, It was a bit of an odd one. And I'm not even sure in 95 if he was on a particular high. Or 96, sorry. Oh, we need to uh, we need to look more into pop culture. Uh, I mean, we're out of touch with pop culture now, but we're out of touch with pop culture in '96 even more. <laughs> well, then we're about we're about on a par with Raw then. Yeah, <laughs> something to do with Sonny and Cher. I'll just make a serial killer reference. <laughs> Flair's got a lot of stuff going on in this promo. So he's saying the Giant got lucky when he won the World Championship. He's then talking about Slamboree's lethal lottery, where Flair's going to have to tag with Savage against Dan Anderson and Eddie Guerrero. Interesting facts, though. When they recorded this episode, because it's not one of those sort of mammoth, you know, four-episode tapings. This is going out live. There were actually some dark matches after the show. All right. And one of the dark matches was uh, Eddie Guerrero versus Chris Benoit. That'd have been good. Another of the dark matches was the Booty Man versus Disco Inferno. So, you know, you, you kind of take the rough with... That'd have been shit. But just, just kind of interesting there that obviously Eddie's going to be involved in um, that storyline. So Flair's telling AA not to make the wrong decision again, as he's done previously when they had the uh, little rivalry. And then Flair offers uh, some champagne to Deborah. So Liz has paid for champagne for him, and now he's trying to pick up a third woman. Although he's already got woman. Deborah pours the champagne away, which Mongo's quite happy about. And Liz says she doesn't mind because um, the champagne's been paid by Matt Sherman and he has lots of money. Yeah, that that end line was from Liz was just she just looked so uncomfortable. She couldn't like that it, she couldn't make that feel natural. Bless her. The thing was, I, I really did like this storyline in general. But I don't think it did Liz any favours being next to Woman. Because no. Woman came across, at, th- at this point, you know, we've, we've spoken previously about how charismatic Liz has been in the career, but at this point, I feel it's Woman that's drawing the attention and Woman that's about a promo and oh, yeah. Woman that kind of looks like a natural fit to be with Ric Flair. And then you've kind of got Liz sort of taped on the side. Yeah, I think, with because it, it was always Liz and Macho. They were the double act. Liz, Liz is charismatic in her own right. Macho's charismatic in his own right, but they gelled perfectly. Macho works on his own without, without Liz. Liz doesn't work so well without Macho, especially not as a heel. If it was a case of, you know, they'd split up because Macho was losing his mind for some other reason, then... She'd, you know, the sympathy would have been on her and it would have worked. It's, it's just hard to hate her, even when she's being, even when she's spending, spending Macho's money and all of that. Because it, again, it just doesn't feel, it, it just doesn't feel quote unquote real. So do you think that was down to the way the story was written? Or do you think that was down to Lizzie's range as an actor? I'm inclined to think more the latter, yeah. Because the, the, there's not the premise of the story. There's not too much wrong with it. Woman, you know, a, a woman betrays a, betrays a husband, or you know, spouse betrays a spouse, whatever. That is easy writing. It's simple. It's, it's easy. It's easy heat. That it, it being easy doesn't mean it's bad or you know whatever. But it sh- it should be easy. 
Liz, it's like when you watch her try and do the do the oh yeah. She never put her all into it and always looked quite uncomfortable. But trying to do that, it was endearing. It was sweet. This yeah. she's still uncomfortable with what she's doing, and it just kind it just defeats the object a little bit. Like I say, you've got woman sat woman sat next to him, who is just fully invested in this character. She she knows a role. She's there. She's quick off the mark. She's you know really um uh, really eloquent, and it, and she's just there. And it just it makes Liz look bad by comparison. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It was the right story, but not the right person to be in it. Even though it wouldn't have made sense if anyone else was in it. Well, in fact, thinking about it, if if he'd managed, obviously she's nowhere near as big a as big a star as Liz. But if if Deborah had turned on Mongo, I think Deborah could have pulled that off. Yeah, because she and, had that she had that range. She had that, and maybe it's because I've seen it in in later years in WWF. But I think she I think she could have done it. Oh, she, she does it in WCW. She kind of plays that sort of heel valet character. Yeah, uh, she was about- with Jarrett, wasn't she, in WCW? Well, she was with Mongo when Mongo joined the Horseman as well. Yes, so that's that's what I was thinking of. She she does end up joining this huge entourage. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, she does. But it's um, yeah, it's just a shame because we've said on other podcasts how much really how much we like Liz and and Ray, and she was the face of pretty much the face of wrestling for a long time. Yeah, that 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 feels like a long time ago though. At this point in her career, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So next we get an advert for. Well, we know it's going to turn out to be Glacier, but at this point, who knows who it can be? All we know is that blood runs cold. And, this and is all part... I know, sorry, I was going to say, all I know is, if I'd watched this, I'd have been about seven years old, and I would have been losing my shit because it looked like Mortal Kombat. Oh, it, 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 it looked great. It looked fantastic at the time. And uh, as you say, you know, the base, the Glacier um, character on, Sub-Zero, you know, that, that was kind of, the background, but they ran these vignettes from April 96 till September 96. So by this point, they've been running it for a month and, you know, they've got another four months of it to go <laughs> for a debut. So it's, it's just a bit weird. The actual costume for Glacier cost them $36,000. Wow. And obviously they end up sort of expanding the brand and Brian Clark becomes... Wrath and Chris Canyon becomes Mortis, so they're really sort of playing into that. But it does seem like a good idea because if if you were just you know buying a toy for a child or a child looking at an action figure sort of thing, and you had ordinary you know an Arn Anderson wrestling figure or a Glacier wrestling figure, I think a lot of people are just are just going to buy the Glacier one because yeah, I'm picking Glacier. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Are you feeling sleepy, Dan? Or snap into a slim gym. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you know what all I wrote, all I wrote for this was like because the way I lay my notes out is I, I look through what's listed on the network, I put my little bullet points in, put a little title so the match name or promo with whoever, whatever. So I put slim gym ad, and all I put after this was was a slim gym ad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. and uh, I mean it might have been naff or whatever, but apparently this this basically paid. For Randy Savage, so WCW getting that Slim Jim ad got an extra person on the roster that they weren't having to pay for. So, you know, Smart. genius WCW, really. To be respected. Yeah. So next we get Lord Stephen Regal with Jeeves. I didn't know this 
so one of the ideas that Eric Bischoff had to sort of keep the crowd energy up during the commercial breaks was obviously to have like the Nitro girls dancing, etc. But they also had a mascot called Wildcat Willie, whose initials are WCW, who oh, would yeah. sort of entertain the crowd. And Jeeves, who's um, Lord Stephen Regal's manager, was the guy inside the Wildcat Willie um, costume. <laughs> That's two very different roles. Well, he probably has to do a very quick costume change. Do you reckon he wore the Jeeves costume underneath the Wildcat Willie costume? Maybe he did. That must or, have been um, roasting. Must have been. Must have been. Um, so a lot of Stephen Regal's um, going to be facing Sting. Bobby Heenan saying that Deborah spilt the champagne by accident, just uh, bringing us back to the previous <laughs> segment. <laughs> oh, Bobby. Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. I love him. I also love the, um, just this costume for Regal at the time. The, uh, the robe with the fluffy sleeves and the, the big ruffly thing around his neck. I don't even know what you call it. And then you've got Jeeves next to, next to him to, to rob a phrase from uh, another podcast who probably ne- who won't hear this, but a podcast called uh, Crime in Sports. They call him a bewigged douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how how hot were the crowd for Sting? Oh, they absolutely, they absolutely loved him. Absolutely. Did you see the sign in the crowd that foretold the future? What did it say? TNT is dynamite. Ah. Uh, uh. yep. Tony Khan going back in time and sitting there with a sign. He's that rich. He's got a fucking time machine. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what he chose to do with it. And, and I think that is actually what Tony Khan would choose to do with it. I choose to believe that. What I did like about Regal in this match is, though, that he was really selling that he'd had a brutal match the week before with the Belfast Bruiser, who's Finlay. And, you know, he had a plaster over his eye and he had bandages on. And, and he's really selling the injuries that he got from the previous week. And, you know, we're in an environment these days where people will have, you know, they'll be in hell in a cell or they'll have a bar, exploding barbed wire death match or whatever, and you'll just see them the next week and they'll look absolutely fine. Whereas Regal was really selling the previous injury. Yeah, he was. He was, he was the way he was moving was brilliant. Like every so often he'd just just go to crack a joint or just move his neck in a certain way or just look to loosen up a muscle in his back or something like that. And it, it's those things that you don't see as a kid or you don't consciously take in. But as an adult looking back, it's just, it's so good. So, yeah. so good. It was good. It was good. Talking about what well, Stephen Regal was wearing, in terms of Sting, Sting's there with a 29 on his tights. And that's because WCW have a car in uh, Bush Car. Obviously, it's number 29. It's driven by Steve Gresham. At this point, they're doing quite well. They won the first race, um, but I think it went very, very quickly downhill thereafter. But uh, at this point, it's still going well. So, Well <laughs> done to the WCW Brum Brums. Yeah. yeah? I didn't notice that. I think that did, they did mention, I'm sure they mentioned the something to do with the cars on, on the commentary, but I just didn't take it in at the time. I was, I was too blinded by neon. Yeah, and, and it was a good move from uh, WCW to sort of promote in another area. I mean, obviously, they've done that with the monster trucks. And, and then, of course, you can sell, you know, the cars and the monster trucks as uh, merchandise as well. And yet every time I hear Bischoff on uh, talk about it, the WCW merchandising arm was the shit. But they had so many opportunities that were created. Yeah. M- maybe he's saying the shit's because they didn't make the most of them. You know, maybe he thought they could have done better. Um, Quite possibly, yeah. But, but, but certainly, in, you know, there was certainly something working. There were certainly creating products and 
you know, thinking outside the box. So, yeah, yeah something was uh, happening, right? Yeah, uh, just going back to Regal for a minute, for a second. Sorry, I did. I had forgotten this. I was quickly checking over my notes. Gets a shoulder tackle at some point, and he goes for the usual, you know, the baby, for, uh, the the heel crying for a timeout and all of that. And then he manages to get a USA chant just for being vaguely whiny and indignant. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> just love it. Doesn't take much to get a USA chant. There's a little frowny face in my notes next to that. Yeah. <laughs> but that, the, thing, the thing is, yeah, well, the thing is, Regal's, Regal's doing his job. That I know, like I've said before, that the USA chant for American wrestling crowns is almost Pavlovian. Because I, th- I can't remember who exactly was in the match, but there wasn't a single American wrestler in the, ma- in the match and they managed to get a USA chant going. Having now in Sami Zayn, isn't it? Yeah, that was it. That was it. Um, but in this, it's, it's just Regal... Just playing the uh, the dastardly stuck up asshole Brit. Yeah, there was some really good stuff in this match. There's uh, a bit where Regal asks for a test of strength and then just pokes Sting in the eye. Yes, I <laughs> love that. That was that was fucking brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I think it kind of felt a bit like it was, you know, maybe a match you might have seen on the camps in terms of Regal's style, but you know. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. No, I think that's what he, part of what he was brought in for. They wanted that diversity, that change in styles. And one thing I did notice, Regal started off trying, he, he was doing a few heel shenanigans, but he was still trying to wrestle technically with Sting. And then part way through the match, he just it's like he realised that wasn't working, so switched it up and just started brawling more, which I thought was a really nice touch. Sting, you know, on, on the, for the hot comeback, um, you know, with his arm drags, missing the splash, hitting the backdrop... And then uh, I think it was uh, didn't I think the finisher didn't Sting attempt the uh, the double underhook, but bridged it for uh, went for the double underhook but bridged it for the three, and I don't think yeah. I've ever seen a, a double underhook like that bridged. It was just really impressive. Yeah, no, I, I thought I thought it was a decent match. I thought there was some decent bits in it. I thought they both looked good. Hmm. But, but it was fully deserving of a sponsored replay by Skittles. Yeah. In one of the least weird sponsors we've seen so far. But it will be made weird in later years with JR practically having an orgasm over how fruity they are. Well, you know, I mean, we, we've talked about corporate sponsorship before, but, um, it, you know, it looks as if they've, they've got a bit of synergy there. They're talking about sweet revenge in the segment being sponsored by Skittles, you know, so uh, at least they've put some thought into it. We get a graphic for Lex Luger versus the Giant. I, I really like sort of at the end of, you know, when they're going to commercial, they're putting these graphics up for the later matches. Uh, I thought that was a nice little touch. I was just thinking there when you were saying about the uh, sort of the cohesion with the sponsorship and things like that. It's just things that WWF weren't doing at that time. You had a yeah. big spot where McMahon just encourages you to drink milk. Our you know our favourite advert so far on on this thing, but incorporating the the sponsor into the replay, tailoring the language used in the replay to you know to the sponsor. It's just really, it's just really, really smart. Yeah, yeah, it, it really feels like they really know what they're doing, and it's firing all cylinders. Feels, you know, sort of all aspects of the show really. It, it zooms past Flair. He's still in the VIP section, and uh, Liz is feeding him. Again, it pans the crowd, and Mongo's um, saying that Luger's going to be here because there's been some speculation he's missed the match um, the previous week. And then we get Jim Duggan making an entrance and Bobby Heenan's hoping that there's another match before the championship match and Duggan's got nothing to do with it. 
I'm sure there's some point as well. He says, uh, "Who's somebody says who's that?" And I think it's Heenan says, "It's Duggan. Who else looks that stupid?" Well, there was a bit when Mongo said, uh, "Maybe Duggan knows what's going on," and Heenan said, "He never knows what's going on." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bloody little Bobby Heenan! Uh, it, it was brilliant. It was, it was absolutely brilliant. It was on fire during this show. It was really good. Uh, I, I know. I know Mongo gets a lot of stick. I, I loved this three-man combination. I thought it worked absolutely brilliantly. It was better than I thought it'd be when I saw Mongo sat at that desk. I because think... my heart sank a bit, and I was like, oh, God, I don't remember Mongo being any good. But he was a better he was a better commentator than he was a wrestler. The thing I liked about having Mongo there was that, you know, he was a legitimate star from another, another sport. Mm. And it sort of gives an air of credibility to it that they've got kind of a big name from somewhere else. And yeah, and an actual world-class athlete as well. And he felt to a certain extent that he was giving sort of the fan view, if that makes sense. So you've got you know Bischoff there doing the play-by-play, you've got Bobby Heenan there doing the, the funny remarks, and and Mongo, to a, a certain extent, is trying to be the voice of the audience. Yeah, to a point. I think when I, I think as well, he, he did offer now and again a little bit of insight into the athletic side of things. Not necessarily, not necessarily the wrestling, but he obviously he knows what it takes to be an, an, a top athlete. Yeah. He relates to these guys that way, and he he did all right in in articulating that on occasion. Yeah, not necessarily about Jim Duggan, but. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so then we get David Pincer announcing that uh, Lex Luger has not arrived in the building, so Hacksaw Jim Duggan's offered to fill in for him, which is very generous considering it's a World Tam- Championship match. The crowd goes absolutely mild for this news. There, there were a few boos for Duggan as he came out. Half the crowd seemed to be into it because it's Duggan, so the, again, Pavlov's dog, they've got, a, they've got a drool and chant USA, but then they're also, where the fuck's Luger? And, I, yeah. and to be fair, I'd be, I'd be kind of, a, I know it's an angle they're running, but if I'd paid to be there, Expecting the Luger Giant main event, and I get Duggan. No disrespect to Duggan, but he's not Luger. <laughs> yeah, and and maybe they were thinking there was going to be a title change as well, because as we discussed, the the Giants are relatively new. Mm. It's kind of that experiment, and maybe they're thinking, you know, it's going to be a transitional champion, and we're going to see Luger get crowned again. We get a USA chant, but uh, everyone involved is uh, from the USA because the Giants there with Jimmy Hart. It's basically a squash match. It's it's relatively quick. The the giant didn't look too bad. I mean, he was he had a lot broader range of moves than he goes to have later on. And I know he uh, gave interviews, you know, for documentaries in WWF. Well, you know, when he went over, and obviously his recent uh, talk is Jericho interview, where he said he didn't receive that much training. But it's funny that someone didn't who didn't receive that much training looks to have a wider move set than someone who claims to have had training later on. Yeah, that is a bit odd because I'm sure I've heard a different a different interview with uh, with Big Show where he's um where he's talked about how Hogan got him into the business and took him under his wing and took him you know showed him the ropes and took him to took him here and there and showed him how to do stuff and other people chipped in and so it's not quite consistent in his uh, in in his message there now whether you know ta- you know over time memories fade and we remember things the way we want to remember them to a degree or embellish things and and 
stories adapt slightly and then you know some sort of the years to a point where you can't tell what the, you've only got the sort of the core fact of it left so i don't know whether that's it but he certainly looked amazing here well not amazing but you know like you say the way the range of moves and the athleticism were great one thing i did like was that duggan went to the hogan school of being a face and tried to jump the start and yeah. was choking giant and doing all the heel moves and giant just kept swatting him away like he was nothing yeah and Duggan's a lot bigger than you think. Yeah, because isn't he like 350, something like that? Yeah. Or 320. I mean, he, he, he just seemed like an average guy in the golden era. But if you were to put him into today's products, he'd probably be treated like a giant. Yeah, and what's mad is that when the giant actually came out, he made that big gold belt that looked so massive on everybody else. He made it look like like the AEW women's title, almost. <laughs> It was like Andre the Giant with the Intercontinental Championship, and it looked like yeah, a <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. But yeah, yeah they, I mean, this this match did what it was meant to do. It made Giant look strong. It, it furthered the Hogan, uh, not Hogan, Luger not showing up narrative, and obviously we get the uh, we get the afters, which were actually more entertaining than the match. So Cobra runs out and gets choke slammed. Das Wunderkind, Alex Wright runs out and gets choke slammed. Don't forget uh, the Cuban assassin. Runs out and gets choke slammed. <laughs> then Ric Flair goes to hit the giant uh, with a chair, and the fans are kind of supporting uh, Ric Flair here. But uh, when he hits him, the chair falls apart, and then the giant goes to choke slam Flair, and Sting saves Flair. So a lot of confusion going on here. The crowd are on the feet, and Sting goes off the top rope and gets the giant down. And Sting briefly gets the giant into the Scorpion Deathlock, but Jimmy Hart goes to attack him with the megaphone. Little so fucking Sting, weasel. Sting releases the hole, gets him into the corner, and then Luger runs out with the briefcase, and Jimmy Hart calls the giant off. So they're sort of sowing the seeds that Luger's, you know, never there when it matters. And is he really on Sting's side? Is he starting to uh, side with Jimmy Hart, perhaps? Sting says, where have you been? And Luger's saying, did you never miss a flight? And, and to be yeah. fair, Luger, I think, just needed to, to say where he actually was because he's quite obviously run to the ring. He's wearing like a, he's wearing like a play suit thing. And obviously with those, you can't go to the toilet very easily. So I think he's had to just strip down in the bog, go for a piss and then put it back on like, um, you know, like like women have to do in nightclubs or bars. It's, he, just, he just had a missed time, piss is all. I think that's probably right. Probably just got there. I know <laughs> later on in WCW, he always had those... Tracky bottoms with the poppers. Yeah, he learned. He learned, so he could just whip them off. Yeah, he learned. Um, to be fair, I could have, I could have done with a pair of them tonight. Nearly got caught short just before the recording. Nearly did myself a mischief. Luger, <laughs> Luger, Luger saw the future in that one. I'm telling you, the future's 1990s tracksuit bottoms. You know they're going to come back soon. Maybe we can get a sponsorship. Sp- sponsored by Kappa. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. I, I actually want a pair of the. I looked into getting a pair of them Kappa trackies with the poppers up the sides. They're they're like seventy quid now. Wow, because the clusters retro. Fuck, I'm old. Don't like it. Passenger time's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what did you think of the show overall? Oh shit! Yeah, we're talking about wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised by the, by most of this. It, the ratings suggest it's going to be absolutely awful, but it it averaged out as as enjoyable. You know, it, it was 
it was it nothing nothing majorly blew me away. So you know the opening the result was what it was, but it was still an entertaining thing. I wasn't a fan of Flair's promo. I didn't really mention it before, um, but when they're talking, it, when it was just all over the place. You know, interrupting Mean Gene with champagne, and he's talking about one thing, then another, then another, then another. It was not necessarily Flair's fault because he's been told to cram so much into a certain amount of time, but it was just borderline rambling. The crowd size was really good. At times, they were pretty hot, and with that many people and that much noise, it obviously it, that just it increases exponentially, and it's always going to make it feel bigger than it is. I think it was it, the, the main event was a bit of a letdown, the actual match itself. The afters was pretty good, set up well for the next week. So, yeah, some good, some bad, but nowhere near as awful as I was expecting. I thought it was a great show. I, I, I loved the bit at the start with the Macho Man's descent into madness. I feel that's a role he's really good at, obviously. You know, we've seen him do that this Tuesday in Texas. He's doing it again here. You know, we get Liger Malenko, which was great to see. I, I really enjoy that Flair storyline at this point. Really enjoyed it. The crowd is hot and can Sting trust Luger. So there's, you know, there's a reason to come back. It's kind of left us on a cliffhanger. And mm. I think we've spoken about this before, about how... WWF weren't doing that. And yeah. I feel that, you know, we do have a cliffhanger um, here at Nitro. So it's time for the awards section of the show. So who would you give match of the night to? For me, it was uh, Lord Steven Regal versus Sting. I, I am quite biased because these are two of my uh, two of my favourites. But I just really enjoyed it. Regal selling, the, the way he was sort of hamming it up to the crowd, the, sort of the, the, camp, um, the camp match aspect to it. It was just done really well. And obviously Sting looked a million bucks. Regal got over as a heel. It did what it needed to do for both men. Yeah, for me, it was the uh, for me, it was a standout. It, it would have been Malenko Liger, probably if not for the interruption at the start with the flare stuff where they're panning away for so long, missing moves. At one point, I think Bischoff said, did you see that? I was like, no, because it's in a tiny fucking window in the bottom of my screen and I can't see it. So yeah, Sting, Stephen Regal takes it for me. I'm actually going to give it to Liger Malenko because it is kind of a little bit of a change of pace to what we've had recently reviewing these shows. Again, it's two two wrestlers that I think are absolutely awesome. You know, Malenko's not far away at this point from that great rivalry with Jericho. Liger's been, you know, amazing for 10 years at this point and is going to go on and be amazing for another 20-odd years. So, yeah, I'm, give, I'm giving it to um, Liger versus Malenko. Yeah, I can't argue with that. Like I said, I very nearly picked it myself. It just the difference was that flair stuff that just totally wound me up. <laughs> not that it's not a good storyline. I just don't... I, it just took away from the match for me. Yeah, no, and, and that's what wrestling's about. As we said before, it's, it's a buffet and some people are going to like things and others aren't. Exactly. So who are you going to give your MVP to? This was a bit of a struggle. Not because there were so many people vying for, you know, who stood out and were so eye-catching and, and whatnot, but because everybody was sort of on a level of mostly just above average. But I think I'm going to give it to Sting. He was part of my match of the match of the night, and then he came out and, and really made the uh, the afters, because up until Sting comes out, we've just got the giant choke slamming fools left and right, Flair softens him up with a chair, Sting comes in, it takes the chop block, it takes a lot of... It takes a lot to get him down. He gets waffled by Jimmy Hart, and then he's part of the uh, the cliffhanger that takes us off the air. So, Sting for me. What about you? I think it's a good choice. 
you're not going to agree with this, but I'm going to say it's Flair. Right. I, well, I, as I say, I'm biased because I really did love this storyline. And I liked the fact that there was a lot of stuff going on because that, that kind of... And, you know, we've always said that there's a lot of stuff going on in WWF uh, at this point, and some of these reviews have felt like, you know, we're having to just snap in between all, all this crazy stuff that's happening in WWF. But it felt more measured than that in my, in, in Nitro. It felt as if there, there was sort of legitimate threats and you, you didn't know which way he was going to go with it. So I, I'm giving it to Flair for, for loading it up with the macho man's money, for the uh, tumble at the end, for the whole Deborah thing, you know, and, and just, you know, his sort of promo where the whole world's against him. Yeah, no, I can see where you're coming from. I really can. You know, Flea was he was there at the near the start. He was there throughout. The, you know, the cutback to him multiple times. It's obviously one of the big angles going on. He was part of the uh, part of the main, uh, not the main event. The you know the afters beat down as they went off the air. So yeah, he was in some way, shape, or form there all the time. So in terms of presence on the show and having one of the uh, the more visible storylines, yeah, I can see it. I really can. And, and you're right in what you say. The stories in. WWF, and I don't know if this is because we've watched so many episodes and sort of we've seen snippets of storylines as they've continued. But you're right; it has felt disjointed week to week. Whereas this all, this just felt tight, and it said, "Here's the stories we're telling. This is where they've come from. Tune in next week to see where they're going." Yeah, it it did feel like it had much more of an episodic flavour to it. But... More more cohesive, I think is. It felt like a television show. It felt like you were watching something that was going to go and evolve and, you know, you were going to... It's a bit wrong to say bingeable because you had to wait a week for the next uh, next episode, but it certainly <laughs> had that, that feel to it. If, if you could have watched the next episode right away, you would have. Yes, yeah, which I think you'd be grateful for the week off when you're watching some of the WWF stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Although, Quite you know, possibly. This, and this may well change as we... Review more episodes and uh, the yeah, I have, I have, I have wondered if we're looking, if we're looking a bit more favourably on WCW because of some of the absolute dross that we've had to sit through. So the next award, and we've often referred to this as the mullet of the night, but it's as, as hairstyles change as we move through the mid to the late nineties. Maybe we should uh, rename that because not everyone has a mullet. So the uh, Rene Goulet Award for best hair of the night. Who would you give that to, Dan? <laughs> and do you know what? I'm sticking with the mullet and I'm giving it to Luger for still having a mullet in 1996. <laughs> Why not? I'm, I'm actually, the longer this lockdown goes on, because uh, at time recording, it's uh, it's 19th of March, so we've been in lockdown for, what, nigh on three months. The longer this goes on, the more I'm considering just shaving the sides of my head and actually just giving myself a lockdown mullet in honour of this, uh, in honour of these uh, these awards. It's what Sean Spears has done. So. Oh, maybe I won't then. You won. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to give it to someone else who was kind of business at the front and party at the back, although maybe he's more Teddy Boy than Muller, and that's Jimmy Hart. That's all I have to say to Jimmy Hart. <laughs> to, again, I've said I've said so many times on this podcast, on others, I can I really can get worked when something you know when something's that that good or bad, and Jimmy Hart has always got under my skin. He's he's as Pleasant, I find him as pleasant as an itchy butthole. <laughs> but, you know, he did have a unique head of hair. He did. He did, in all fairness to him. So, what 
grade would you give this show out of 10, Dan? And here we go for Dan's uh, Dan's rating ramble. <laughs> <laughs> so for the matches, I mentioned before that I, rate, I rated the opener first in terms of it being an actual match, which to me it was like a two or three out of ten. Um, and then as a spectacle, as a piece of entertainment, which it was way up there, it was about a seven. So that averaged out about a five. Then the main event, it was a squash. It did what it needed to do, made Giant look look decent, but it wasn't great. It was below average, so that's a four. Um, and then jumping back, Malenko, Liger, and uh, Regal and Sting. I was trying. I was. I was being nice. I took the flair stuff out of my Malenko Liger rating, um, and actually gave the in-ring action a six because it was good, but it wasn't that long. It was. It was fine. And Regal versus Sting. It's. I know you don't like it when I go into the point fives, <laughs> so I couldn't, in all honesty, I couldn't, in all honesty, give it a seven. So that's a six as well. Uh, but that all averages out about five for the matches promos. There was only really the flair promo and the the Slim Jim ad if you can count that as a promo. So I wasn't a fan of the Flair promo. I gave it on and I gave it three. The Luger and Sting stuff was all right at the end, but that's not really a promo. It's just an on-screen argument. The production was some of the best we've seen so far. The Glacier vignette, the the intro, the pyro, the way things were shot, even, even down to putting that shot of Daytona Beach in the opening. Yeah was fantastic the uh and uh, yeah the the commentary was was really good as well so i've given that seven out of ten because it's the best we've seen so far it's not perfect um you know nothing is but it, and it doesn't quite reach the upper echelons but definitely a seven glacier vignette for reference was a 10 <laughs> on its own <laughs> the storyline stuff we've met i won't bang too much on about it but we've mentioned it all the different threads coming together for uh luger giant being an unstoppable monster all the flare stuff that was really good, really cut, really tight, really clear. You knew where it come from, roughly what it was going to. So I gave that a seven as well. The fan response was a little up and down. Some points they, were, they started off really hot, hotter than any crowd we've seen. They did pop for certain bits, but then you know through the uh, cruiserweight match they were sort of sat on the hands and not really doing much. So I've given that uh, I've maybe been a bit mean and uh, and given that a six. But it just means that overall, for me, this comes out a, a 6 out of 10, which is way more than I was expecting from a 1.9 rated show. Yeah, and it's certainly more than you gave last week. So I think you gave uh, a 5 last week to a show that uh, both Mags and I gave a 7 to. So <laughs> I'm out to impress. Turning out to be the Grinch. I, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was better than last week's show. I think it's the best show that we've watched as we've been reviewing these so far. I'm going to, and this is going to annoy you after what you've just said, I'm going to break that rule and um, break out a point thing. because I, Oh, you fuck it. Right. In that case, I'm giving it a 6.5. Right. Yeah, you can give it a 6.5. That's absolutely fine. And I'm going to give it a 7.5. I don't think, I, I thought it was great. I thought it was really good. Really, really solid. Really great um, production. The, you know, just everything so tight. But, you know, with the best one in the world, it's not sort of a perfect show. Just no. because it's be- just because it's better than what we've seen doesn't mean it's going to be getting a ten or anything. So I'm going with a seven point five for it. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. I mean, one thing I've, I'm tr- one thing I consciously tried to do rating things was I know we've talked about it in comparison to Raw a lot, but I tried to take that out of it and be as objective as I could and, and watch this 
as a wrestling show and judge it on its own merit, which is why I ended up with the 6.5. Yeah. Because, it, you know, if I'm... I can't think of, you know, like, if we're, if we're going to use the benchmark for wrestling shows and to rate something that'll come near a 10, then you're looking at something like WrestleMania 17. Well... For me. I, I mean, we, we are going to get a lot of epic storylines, potentially. Um, mm. Depends if we hit them or not, you know, with these highest and lowest ones. So may, maybe we will, you know. So it just depends what we're going to get. But the, the key for this was that, that bingeability factor that would you have rolled straight onto the next one? And yeah. the only reason I'd have rolled straight onto the next one of Raw is I might think that I'm going to be busy the next week and I can get it out of the way now. Whereas, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, obviously I did watch them at the time and, you know, sort of, it, it's been great going through them. But it's been quite nice to have a gap in between them. Whereas this episode of Nitro, you know, you, you sort of, you, you're fully immersed in it. You're wanting to know what's happening. And I think that's probably why they're off to the races thereafter. It's a soap opera factor. Yes, definitely. That's what it is. Because I've like somebody once asked me to to describe wrestling, and I said it's like a live action stunt show soap opera. Yeah. And when you dial up the soap opera element, that bleeds into the entertainment side of things, which makes it more digestible. To you know, to the wide you know, to a wider community, but also means it makes you want to watch more. Yeah, so, and then, yeah. Oh, that's how I felt with this show. So, would it surprise you that the community on Cage Match have rated this at five point eight seven out of ten? Ooh, I'm getting closer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm getting closer. I think Cage Match were harsh on this show. Um, yeah, they were. It, it was. It was. It was better than a. It was better than below a six. I know I gave it a six initially, but that's only because I, I thought you didn't like the decimals. So, I've... <laughs> oh, they, they have they have to come out eventually, but I wanted to try and delay it as long as possible. Fair enough. I can see why. And, and if I might say as well, I think um, is there is there a certain nostalgia factor uh, for you with the Flair storyline and things like that that maybe bumps it up a little bit for you? Or yeah, and, fair and... to say. And funnily enough, just from a series of coincidences, I think this is one of the episodes of Nitro I've probably watched most. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously I watched it at the time. And then in the mid-noughties, I got some DVDs that people had recorded off TV with the Nitros and then, you know, watched through Nitro again. And then when the network came out, I watched through Nitro again. And sometimes when I picked an odd episode, it turns out to be this episode. All right, fair enough. So I'm, I must have seen this episode six or seven times by now. So maybe there is a nostalgia factor, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I didn't mean that as a shot or anything either, which no. which I know you know, but it's um, it it just uh, just to give an insight into into the inner workings, what's going on in that noodle. Well, the flip side of that is that um, I did watch the the Raws, and I guess I, I didn't build a nostalgia. Factor True. Them, so you know, they they had the chance. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point, yeah. Yeah, there is that. I mean, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I watched these at the time, but I was like six, seven years old and it just uh, just didn't stick with me. But then I remember Bulldog, watching Bulldog versus Brett in 92 at SummerSlam and then virtually nothing about wrestling until Kane appeared in 97. That etch sketched your memory from the rest of wrestling. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. As soon as I saw him set someone on fire, that was it. 
And then you started stanning Kane. No, I'm, I'm not a stan. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a Kane yeah. appreciator. I, I refuse to get drawn into fucking stan culture. The Kane appreciator, he just has a restraining order. No, that's from Glenn Jacobs, not Kane. <laughs> I don't so have where... a restraining order. <laughs> but if people were trying to find you rather than put a restraining order in place, where can people find you, Dan? Uh, in the bushes outside the mayor's <laughs> house in uh, Knox County, Tennessee. <laughs> Um, no, I'm on Twitter uh, at DanGriffin21. Uh, you can come there and uh, listen and uh, chat with me about wrestling that's about six weeks out of date and the uh, the odd episode of Dynamite or Raw. And I'm also occasionally taking over the uh, the Twitter account of this very podcast at UTT Podcast. And I'm on uh, the monthly pay per view reviews with that 90s wrestling podcast at 90s Wrestling Pod. Fantastic. You can also find. Me there. You can find me at UTT Rob. Uh, I'm more into mutuals than followers, so if you want to follow me, I'm more than happy to follow back. In terms of the show, it's on the That Night Is Wrestling podcast channel. It's also available on its own channel if you go to your favourite podcast app and search UTT Podcast or Unbooking the Territory. It should pop up there. If not, let us know and we can try and do something about it. Just a little peek behind the scenes in sort of real time we've just dropped the teaser episode which we've had um, quite a decent response to so thank you to everyone that's uh, that's listening Ho- hopefully you're still listening at this point uh, thank you kindly <laughs> if you are much appreciated uh, uh, scared anyone off and because we've released on mondays bang bang podcasts are uh, saying that uh, we've started the monday morning wars but uh, feel very much like wwf in this that we've pre-taped a load yeah <laughs> yeah, we've we front loaded. We didn't even know we were in a war until it was too late. Yeah, just like the WWF. Yeah, we yeah. Oh god. Hang on, does that make you Vince McMahon? I think that makes us Bill Watts at this point. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> and I'm just Vince Russo sat in the corner nodding. <laughs> well, give you a couple of years and you'll come good. You up. <laughs> Talking about Vince Russo, James interviewed him for that 90s wrestling podcast. So if you are listening on that channel, you can go back in the archives and listen to that interview. Hopefully some of these other heads of creative will uh, acquiesce to being interviewed at some point so we can uh, get to hear from them too. Fingers crossed. Always love a tie-in or a crossover. Next week, we're going on to Bruce Pritchard and Jim Cornette's lowest rated episode. And hopefully we'll have um, the podcast legend, the big fish himself, Mags, back on the show to uh, help us review that and uh, bookend Bruce Pritchard and Jim Carnett's career. Well, yeah, career was be... creative, not, not the whole <laughs> career. <laughs> yeah, it'd be great to have Mags back. I am not confident at all that the lowest rated episode of Raw that we're looking at so far will be as pleasantly surprising as this one. <laughs> well, you'll have to tune in next week and find out. He's going to go right down the toilet. He's got to have a 